The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to This is Catholicism. Hello. Nice to be here. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit www.truerestoration.org forward slash radio and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. Well, Your Excellency, welcome back. Um, I know you. Uh, we removed you from this show because you had other show responsibilities, but we're bringing you back this season. Um, and we're going to continue where uh, Father Fleece and Father Disposito left us, and that is in the Catechism of the Catholic Religion by Father DeHarb, and we're in the third article. Yes, that's correct. And the first question in this article is, what does the third article of the Creed principally teach us? It speaks about the incarnation of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Uh, that he became man by the power of the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. So that, uh, that's one of the principal uh, articles of our faith. Uh, however, it, you have to be careful of that because all the articles of our faith have the same weight. Uh, we don't have, as the Protestants have in certain cases, fundamental articles and then others which are more negotiable. Uh, everything. Protestants uh, in the past, uh, I think in, in the 18th century, came up with the idea that there are certain fundamental articles of the religion and other some that are not fundamental, that is, uh, where they really don't matter. And uh, so when I say that the incarnation is uh, a, a principle dogma of our faith, it doesn't mean to say that they uh, that it in any way is more the object of faith than any other, such as the Immaculate Conception or uh, the Holy Eucharist. The, 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 everything has the same weight because everything is revealed by God and proposed by the Catholic Church for belief. So, um, uh, so that when I say principal article of faith, I just mean that it is fundamental to the Catholic religion uh, and, and that other articles of faith that we have really flow from the Incarnation and the Redemption and the Trinity. Those are the, the three big ones. <clears throat> so I'll combine the next two questions, Your Excellency. Number two is, what do we call this mystery? And number three is, what is then our belief concerning Jesus Christ when we believe the mystery of the Incarnation? Well, we call it the Incarnation because that is... Uh, a, uh, a Latin word, uh, a 
caro, carnis in Latin means flesh, so it's the uh, fleshization, so to speak, uh, of the uh, Son of God. Uh, and then uh, we believe, by this mystery of the Incarnation, as dogma, that Christ is both true God and true man, or that he is a God-man. Uh, he is God from eternity and then became man in time. We say these words easily, but when we contemplate this idea of one person, two natures, that, that someone is two different things, God and man at the same time, and that God, who is infinite, uh, uh, took to himself a human nature, uh, which is very finite and fragile, and that when we are in the presence of Christ, we are seeing both God and man. That is a very, very deep mystery and uh, one that very much exceeds the ability of human beings to completely understand. Uh, it is, uh, after the Blessed Trinity itself, it's considered the greatest of all the mysteries. Well, it's it's really stupendous, really, Your Excellency, as you were saying, that the idea of God in the eternal presence and then our, our Lord as encapsulated within time. I, my my brain is just not powerful enough to 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 really understand that concept. And I feel that we're wading into some very deep water here because I know this is a concept that is studied for a long time at the seminary. That priests really have to, future priests really need to understand this concept. So. We'll go slowly for our listeners because, as you said, it's not uh, an easily understood concept. Yes, and, and they should understand that, that it is not possible to totally comprehend it. Even the greatest mind, even the Blessed Virgin Mary, does not totally comprehend it. But you can understand certain things about it. That's very important. Question four, what do we mean by saying Jesus Christ is also true man? Well, it means that he is everything that a human being is, except that he does not have original sin, obviously, and he does not have the effects of original sin. Uh, it is true that he took on uh, certain effects of original sin, uh, such as the ability to die uh, and the uh, ability to suffer. Anything that he found necessary in order to redeem the human race. He took on, but not by title of guilt, obviously, but he accepted them in order to die uh, for the human race and in order to sacrifice for the human race. So right from the beginning, his birth in Bethlehem is already a suffering. It's a humiliation. <clears throat> it's a suffering because of the, the circumstances of his birth and being born in a stable, uh, he's already uh, redeeming the human race. He's already preaching poverty, he's preaching detachment, he's uh, preaching the cross, that you have to bear the cross in order to attain eternal salvation. So uh, he, uh, he, that's the whole purpose of the Incarnation, uh, that is to, that the, the human nature of Christ be an instrument of God's uh, act of salvation of the human race is that he, he uh, that he sacrificed himself for the human race and that he teach the human race what it must believe. So uh, 
That's the, the whole purpose of the incarnation. And therefore, he, he took everything that belongs to us by nature, uh, except original sin, uh, uh, and, but he even took some effects of original sin in order to uh, suffer. I really appreciate that concept of our Lord already preaching in the crib, that idea of poverty. I remember from a sermon you gave recently uh, of the finding in the temple that that was also our Lord preaching that he needed to be about his father's business. He wasn't uh, preaching that we need to disobey our parents like some other people would have us believe. Oh, goodness, no. (laughs) No, That's the whole point. Uh, Our Lord, Our Lady said, you know, your father and I essentially were worried about you. And then he says, do you not know or did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Meaning his father in heaven. I don't know if you get that contrast. St. Joseph is his foster father and his protector. But he turns that to Our Lady and says, my father is in heaven, don't forget. You know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and, it, it was, uh, and it says, you know, our Lord, our Lady uh, kept these things in her heart, you know, all these these things that he said. Uh, and uh, but it was very, very pointed that his father is in heaven and that he's doing the duty of his father. This is why he came, and and so it was quite normal that he should come to the temple and do this, and there was no disobedience at all. Questions five and six are again related to each other. How many natures then are there in Jesus Christ? Number six, are there also in Jesus Christ two wills distinct from one another? Yes, there are two uh, distinct natures, really distinct natures in Christ, divine and human. Uh, This is against uh, one of the heresies that said that, uh, that the human and divine nature are sort of mixed up in Christ. Christ is sort of a cake, if you want, of human and divine, that it all got mixed up and then you, know, you came out as some something uh, uh, that was neither human nor divine, but a type of mixture of the, of the natures, and that's not true. They are really distinct, uh, and they are bound up together by the person of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, which... Uh, we'll see later. Uh, therefore, there are two wills distinct from one another because there's the divine will in Christ and the human will. Uh, this, again, was defined by the Church because of a heresy in the 7th century uh, in which uh, Sergius of Constantinople, the Archbishop of Constantinople, said there was only one will in Christ. And uh, uh, now it is true that there was no conflict of these two wills, uh, but there were, were still two wills in Christ, just as there are two intellects in Christ. Uh, there's no conflict. There, there's, everything is in harmony, but uh, nevertheless, there were two wills. Well, and I suppose that has to harmonize with the uh, previous answer. He couldn't be fully man if he didn't also have a human will. Absolutely. He had to have everything. Uh, and he could not have redeemed the human race unless he were truly man. Because according to the plan of God, there had to be a sacrificial victim from among men who himself was not guilty of the sin. See, if you're guilty of the sin, you can only atone for yourself by dying. 
you can't atone for anyone else. You can't take on anyone else's sin. And also, because the the offense was infinite to God, the uh, act of reparation had to be infinite, and consequently it was necessary that he be both God and man. That is, someone who could suffer on the one hand, but suffer with infinite reparation because his acts were acts of God. Question seven. Are there also two persons in Jesus Christ? Uh, no, there is only one person, and uh, that is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. This, too, is an answer to a heresy, that of Nestorius, who said there were two persons. See, our Lord is not two things. He, uh, he is, uh, it's not like two boxcars. Uh, the two natures are not like two boxcars that are linked together. Uh He is not two different things. He is one thing, we might say, one being. And uh, that is the, uh, and his, the two natures are united in one person. So he is one by the singularity of his person. And that person is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Therefore, there is no human person Christ. And that's very important because uh the that means uh, for example we we see Christ portrayed typically in movies and and even in art as someone who is a, a human person uh someone who is uh we might say it's hard to always explain something but we might say far too human he, he, when, when you were speaking to our Lord Jesus Christ, you were talking to the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And so that explains all of his miracles. It explains all of his sacred doctrine. It explains the, the we might say, uh, the, the great influence that he had over people. For example, that people would stay three days and listen to him because he... he in a way, spellbound you. you know, he, he, you're, you're, he was so different from ordinary human beings, you were just drawn to him. You couldn't take your eyes off of him. You couldn't leave him. You, couldn't, you just wanted to hear more because it is God speaking. And all of this divinity exuded through his humanity. See, the, the, he, he, it's very hard to describe what he was like, but he was someone who... who uh, just exuded divinity, and and that is portrayed it's very well in sacred art, especially the Middle Ages, uh, you know, the iconic art, the uh, uh, where you, you see right away his divinity. Uh, and yes, of course, he is man too. But the, the the main characteristic that you would have noticed in in our Lord Jesus Christ is divinity, and. Uh, so he was uh, not, so to speak, one of the guys, as he's shown in a lot of artwork and in a lot of movies, and just some, uh, you know, somebody who, who taught some nice doctrines and was a nice man or something. He he was a whole different kind of person. And again, that's probably just a failure on our part of imagination, Your Excellency, in trying to capture what you're talking about. How do you, you know? And uh, that reminds me that. Uh, your description of that uh, reminds me, I know you're not a huge fan of movies, but you, you have a tolerance for Ben-Hur. And uh, our Lord's not really pictured at all in that movie, 
but that that presence that you talk about where he he's able to affect people in the film just by a look and you see the way this centurion or or this roman soldier yeah. reacts yeah. to him <laughs> yeah. i i i i think that's probably the best representation and to your point he's not represented <laughs> and so that's what yes. uh, people were reacting to yes uh, and also the they did it very beautifully because they you never saw his face uh, and that's the best religious film uh, concerning Christ that, that was made, <laughs> uh, because you never saw his face, but it's true. Uh, no human being can ever do Christ, no matter how good he is. He could never do our Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the, also, if you remember in that movie, the, the, the looks on the people's faces when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, how they were staring at him, it was very nicely done. And and you just saw him in the distance sitting down on a rock, but they were all spellbound by him in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, you know, other places where, you know, for example, uh, during the Passion, uh, uh, Ben-Hur wants to wipe his face or give him some water. And again, he, he, he sees that face that he once knew. Uh, and uh, that's I, I think that's very accurate that you you would never mistake his face uh, and there's something about him that pulls you uh you know the way the, the apostles just went for him and and just when they called uh, you know, there's, there's something that that would draw you to him and uh we have to always see him in you know in his divinity primarily saint teresa said the humanity uh, of christ is the path to his divinity first we become attached to his humanity but then through his humanity, we become attached to his divinity. We, you know, we discover his divinity more. And, and so his humanity is a path to his divinity. And I suppose, you're see, that's probably why the Shroud of Turin is so powerful um, for, for us as a visual people, for us to be able to get some kind of insight into what our Lord looked like, even though it's in, it's in the state that it's in. It's a, it's a real gift to us to be able to see that. Yes, it has a certain sacredness about it that you, you you know cannot describe, but it's in front of you. It's the same kind of thing. It's uh, uh, and the way it was done, you know, by uh, something like laser light. They, they say, you know, it was, it was, it's a negative uh, from uh, a light that has been emitted from his body when when he was uh, when he rose from the dead and. Uh, that you know the whole thing comes back to you when you look at that uh yeah it, this this is something very sacred about it I, I cannot describe it to you but i got very close to it uh and uh you're in the presence of something sacred and i think that that would be this the same case as you know if you actually saw our blessed lord you know right away that that he was very very different <laughs> to say the least now you you mentioned Nestorius, Your Excellency. Am I correct? He's the one who wanted to use Christokos instead of Theotokos as sort of a weasel word to try to put his doctrine yes. forward. Yes. So let me explain that the uh, the traditional doctrine is Theotokos, which is um, Christ, God bearer, and and that was the uh, the title for our Blessed Lady that she. Uh, bore God, and therefore she's the mother of God, and that title belongs to her very properly. It's not just uh, some honorary thing, but very properly she is the mother of God. 
That does not mean that she gave birth to his divine nature, of course. Uh, she provided the human nature, but because he's one person, remember I said he's one thing, so to speak, he's one person, that means she is the mother of that person. And, and that person is the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Blessed Trinity. Therefore, she deserves the title of Mother of God. So, whenever you attack something of Our Lady, you are indirectly, attack, indirectly attacking something of Our Lord. So, it really was a Christological heresy. And so they said, so Nestoria said, well, she's not the Mother of God, but the Christotokos, which is Mother of Christ. You can say she's Mother of Christ, that is, the human nature of Christ, but because he's not one person but two persons, she cannot be said to be the mother of God. That was the heresy. And by the way, that uh, uh, most of the clergy and most of the people of the cathedral, uh, and that was Santa Sophia where he said that, on Christmas Day, got up and walked out. It's only his crony. That's your kind of that's your kind of congregation, right? Yeah, that's my kind of congregation. If ever I would say anything like that from the pulpit, God forbid, may all the people get up and walk out and slam the door as they leave. Uh because that that's the, the reaction that people should have to any kind of heterodoxy. They should care very much about what is preached at the pulpit and they should protest against any kind of heterodoxy from the pulpit. And then the clergy got together and said, they had a meeting together and said, we have an emperor, but no bishop, because he has fallen into heresy, which I think is very significant that, uh, that the, uh, they recognized that he lost his ability to be the bishop for as long as he held that heresy. But he was not removed <clears throat> as you know, officially as the Archbishop of Constantinople until three years later. Just as Luther fell into heresy and was truly a public heretic in 1517, but he was not excommunicated until 1521. So there is always a, a lapse or a, a, a drag, so to speak, between the fact of heresy and the declaration of heresy. But it is the fact of heresy that puts you outside the church already. Well, and I think that's probably important for those uh, in today's uh, time period in the church who feel that you need a declaration for everything. Uh, I, I reminded, uh, what are you going to believe, me or your eyes? And uh, when you hear heresy, you know heresy, right? Uh, yes, to, and there the has to question. be, well, just uh, let me comment that there has to be an, an, uh, uh, a realization of the facts before you can get a declaration. How can you have a declaration if people have not noticed the fact? Mm. See, it, it makes no sense. I mean, the, the fact has to exist before the declaration can exist. And, and so uh, the, the declaration is simply to make, to put in officialdom and legaldom, we might say, what is fact. And then it has certain legal consequences. That's all. And I guess that's also, a, in a more analog world, Your Excellency, having it be published officially would mean that it would notify everyone else in the world who hadn't already heard about it. In the Internet world, 
you hear about everything first. You don't need yes. uh, to wait for someone else to notify you. I suppose that's from a time period when you you weren't uh, you didn't have ready access to information that we do today. Huh. Like if somebody dies, let's say somebody's assassinated, they are not legally dead until there's a death certificate. Hmm. See, but they're really dead. <laughs> they're as dead as a doornail, <laughs> and everybody knows it. And if you were to say, well, I, I don't believe that he's dead until I see a, a, a death certificate, you're, you know, what are you, out of your mind? Are you crazy? You know, that somebody's been shot to death, you know, some dignitary's been shot to death, and, and you're not going to believe it until you see a death certificate? But he's not legally dead until days afterwards when the death certificate is produced. See, it, it, it's always that's, it's always true. There's always fact that you know, true fact and legal fact, and there's always a drag because it takes time to establish the legal fact. But the legal fact only is is good for certain legal effects. For example, you cannot distribute his wealth until there's the legal uh, fact of his death. See, but that that does not in any way erase the real fact or in, in any way weaken it. Hmm. So, you know, that's just a footnote to all of that. Question eight. Why is the incarnation of the Son of God attributed to the operation of the Holy Ghost? Uh, Because the Holy Ghost is subsistent love. And the, the idea of God coming to earth to save the human race is an act of divine love that beggar's description. Uh, it, it is uh, that, that God would descend to help this sinful race to get out of its problems, especially when we see historically that most of the human race will ignore what he's doing and that most of the human race will persist in the sin of infidelity, sins of heresy, uh, that even those who are baptized will go down the path of heresy in many cases, that there will be a great apostasy toward the end of the world, which we're living through right now, that all of those who have seen the waters of baptism and who have profited from Catholic instruction will lose the faith. When, when, when you consider what, how God sees in eternity and what the relatively paltry effect will be of of this incarnation and this redemption. Uh, it, it is mind-boggling that he would deign to do it. it, it why did he come? You know, we're, it's like stepping into the valley of the lepers uh, and where most of the lepers are going to spit at you. Mm. You know, when you consider the history of the human race, uh, and and it is again a great mystery, but we must always remember that God does not consider numbers; He looks at intensity. So that the the life of a great saint, the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary, or any great saint, or even the the life of a good Catholic, uh, is far more intense from the point of view of of what God is looking for, a bright light, so to speak, that the, the darkness of all of the others really doesn't count for him. 
he's not. It doesn't bother him. It, it does. He, you know, he's he's he wants to 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 draw to himself those souls that are faithful to him, and and uh, and he delights in that. The rest, there really is not, there's no. And actually, they will glorify him in the end. You know, when he comes back to the earth where there is no faith, and he judges the earth, that clash between the apostasy of the nation and his judgment will glorify him greatly. And that's why he's permitting this. He's permitting a great darkness in order that we see the great light. Hmm. So, again, I'm getting off the subject, I think. But the, the, the there is a... So the Holy Ghost is is uh, subsistent love, subsistent divine love, and therefore it's appropriate that uh, he carry on the sanctification of the human race. Uh, and and obviously our, our Lord is necessary for the sanctification of the human race. But notice that our Lord is our advocate while he is on earth, but he ascends into heaven and he sends the advocate with, who is the Holy Ghost who it directs the church for all these centuries. The Holy Ghost really is the, the he, for the sanctification of the human race, he is, it's attributed to him principally. The, the sanctification, that's why we invoke him for the, for the ordination, come Holy Ghost, just as he came down upon the Blessed Virgin Mary and, and made her conceive of the Holy Ghost, so he comes to the priest and makes him a Christ so that he can say the words of consecration, uh, this is my body. See, and, and he comes, uh, he is, uh, it, all of the sanctification of the human race is attributed to the Holy Ghost. So that would be the, just the best way to put it. And therefore, it is appropriate that the Holy Ghost carry on this and perform this work of incarnation because... Uh-huh. The incarnation is for the sanctification of the human race. I suppose if we're looking at art, Your Excellency, this is maybe one of the easier ideas for us to grasp. I'm, I'm thinking of all of those countless pieces of art where we see God the Father's hand, we see a dove, we see Our Lady, we, we, see, our, we see the incarnation expressed in that way. It may be one of the easier uh, again, compared to the Trinity, compared to what we were talking about in the Incarnation, that this operation you're talking about is maybe a little easier for us to understand. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, the way people are normally conceived is by the union of the sperm and the egg. And, well, obviously that should not take place. <laughs> so what happened? I mean, how did, what was the action of the Holy Ghost upon the Blessed Virgin Mary in such a way that she conceived of a God-man. That is extremely mysterious. Nobody has any explanation for it <laughs> whatsoever. Okay? Right. But right. Uh, definitely he was the active role in that. <clears throat> so questions 9 and 11, we answered with, you were talking about Nestorius, question 9, from whom did the Son of God take his human nature? And question 11, why is Mary called Mother of God since Christ took only his human nature from her? So we'll skip over those and go to question 10. Why is Mary called the purest of virgins? Because 
it is the dogma of the Catholic Church that she is a virgin before, during, and after the uh, birth of Christ. So uh, her virginity was never compromised either in her heart or even physically. That's the dogma of the Catholic Church. If anyone denies that, he's a heretic. Uh, that means that our blessed Lord did not open her womb when he was born, but came through her womb, her unopened womb, uh, in the same way that he came through the stone when he rose from the dead. Most people don't realize that. They have pictures of him rolling back the stone. He did not roll back the stone. The angels <laughs> right. rolled back the stone. He came through well, the stone. Coming through the, and also him coming through the wall at Pentecost then, Your Excellency. Yes. Uh, well, yes, uh, after he rose from the dead, he came through the, the walls. And that was not due to his glorified body, but due to his divinity. He was able to mm. penetrate walls and solid things owing to his divinity, uh, not owing to the glorified body, because the glorified body would not in itself be able to do that. Uh, it was mm. his divinity, his his control over nature, that permitted him to do that, and uh, so that that's uh, so he just came through the the stone. The stone was no obstacle for him; he was God. So he came through the stone. That's probably why he shocked the, <laughs> the soldiers so much. Uh, that, uh, that, but the stone was rolled back by the angels. Uh, so that that's why she's called the purest of virgins. And also her heart was pure as a virgin. She never had any, first of all, she had, did not have any of the revolt of the passions uh, as a result of original sin because she was without original sin. That's point number one. And uh, uh, secondly, you know, she never had any temptations or any inclination at all to anything impure. So she is the purest of virgins. Uh, and and the catechism cites Isaiah uh, uh, in that, that the, a virgin shall conceive. And it, this again, it, it, the fathers unanimously apply this to uh, the uh, virgin birth. Uh, and uh, it is therefore de fide, it pertains to faith that we understand that as applying to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because obviously it could not be a sign. It says... <laughs> The, before this verse, it says, God himself will give you a sign. That's what Isaiah says. And then he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It would not have been a sign if just a young girl conceived and bore a son. <laughs> because there's plenty of young girls that conceive and bear a son. Uh, and mm. Because the Protestants and heretics wanted to to translate that. Uh, as as uh, a young girl, you know. but that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son it is is uh, and that is, he'll be Emmanuel, that is God with us. Well, of course, uh, because if if she conceives uh, by God, then God is with us. So it's very clear. <clears throat> now you've spoken very highly of our of Our Lady, Your Excellency. That leads into question number twelve, uh, as many Protestants might think, do we believe that, therefore, Mary is equal to God? No, that's, that's of course, nonsense. Uh, no one can be equal to God. Uh, the, the God is 
necessarily one and unique. Uh, if there were two gods, they would have to be distinguished by something, uh, and therefore one would have something that the other didn't, and, and therefore neither would be infinite, neither would be God. So there can't be two gods, uh, and therefore no one can be equal to God. It just means that our lady has been raised to a very high level of grace, full of grace. Uh, and and that uh, she is an image of God by that grace, uh, but that no, she's a, a human being that has that has merely been highly graced by God. Question thirteen: Had Jesus Christ also an earthly father? No, that that would be heresy to say that. No, he he had uh, Saint Joseph as a protector and foster father a true spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but they were, uh, they lived uh, celibately in the sense that they, they never had uh, sexual intercourse. Uh, and, uh, and we know this from the Annunciation because she said, I do not know man. Uh, as if we would say, well, I do not drink or something like that. In other words, it's totally outside of my intention and experience. I, I've, I just don't do that. See? And that, that was a condition of her consent. How shall this come to be? Because I do not know man. I, I will not consent to it if it involves that. Uh, that's the implication of it. And so uh, they were already practicing uh, uh, perfect virginity uh, as husband and wife and uh, although they had, according to the commentators, they had not come together yet. You see, uh, in the Old Testament, you would get married, uh, and then, but you wouldn't live together until a certain point. There would be a big ceremony where you came together. Uh, the the groom would go to the to the uh, spouse's house and and take her in a procession, and then they would have. Uh, you know, eight days of celebrating, but there was a private ceremony actually of wedding, and uh, they were already wedded, but they were not yet together. So that was uh, the custom at that time. So, uh, but they were truly husband and wife at the time. And she said, "I do not know man." Uh, so, uh, to answer the question, no, he had no earthly father. You've alluded this, uh, to this already during our conversation today, Your Excellency, but question 14, why did the Son of God become man? And as you said, uh, it certainly doesn't seem to make any sense to us. We, we certainly don't seem to have the gratefulness uh, for what our Lord has done. No, uh, he, came, uh, he became man for a single reason, and that is to redeem man from his sins and give him the possibility of becoming sons of God, as the gospel, the last gospel of the Mass says, uh, and uh, that uh, going to heaven, being heirs to heaven, being children of God, th those are all the things that he came for. And he had to do that through suffering and death. And that's why he accepted a, a, a nature that could suffer and die. Uh, and uh, he also came to, to teach us virtue and holiness. So he came to preach the gospel to us, because remember that holiness depends on the faith. You cannot be holy if you don't believe, if you don't accept the truth of Christ. 
and the truths of the, that are taught by the Catholic Church, you cannot expect to go to heaven. You can't go to heaven just for being a nice person or, or you know, or for being nice to animals or, or something like that. You go to heaven first because you have accepted the faith and you adhere to the faith uh, absolutely. Uh, so he had to reveal his father to us and, and tell us many things that we needed to believe. So, but that is all part of our holiness. See that, that you, 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 you cannot have holiness unless you first believe. And so uh, those are his, were his motives for becoming man. And, and it, you know, again, why he would be motivated to, to save this race, uh, give it the possibility when he saw by his divine wisdom that, uh, most of the blood that he would shed would go wasted upon humanity. Uh, it, it, it is truly uh, uh, mysterious. Uh, it's the only word for it. Question 15. What virtues does Jesus teach us by his example? Uh, the honor of God uh, uh, and, and zeal for the salvation of men, uh, meekness, humility, patience, Kindness and mercy towards everyone, and uh, even our enemies, and obedience to his heavenly Father unto death. So our blessed Lord uh, taught a, a gospel that they people had never heard before, even in the Old Testament. Uh, there are certain allusions to it here and there, but uh, the idea of loving your enemies and doing good to those who do evil to you uh, is something that was really never heard of. Nobody in the in the whole world ever heard of that. <laughs> Pagans, you know, just, what are you, crazy? We're supposed to love our enemies and, and do good to people who do harm to us, and, and as St. Paul says, overcome evil by good. Um, that is a whole new gospel, you know, I mean, in the sense that he... he uh, um, and... Uh, Humility, the virtue of humility, uh, mercy, and and the, you know that word today is is used so horribly uh, by Bergoglio to to uh, approve of dirty filth, uh, uh, sexual sins. That's what he's using it for. But the, you know the true mercy, the uh, uh, to you know where someone deserves to have mercy who has done evil. Uh, that that they receive mercy, so that there there is a um, a gentleness we might say that that is very proper to uh, Christianity. Uh, I was um, saying this the other day to somebody uh, that uh, in the Middle Ages uh, you you could not attack your enemy on a Sunday or a holy day of obligation. Now there were many holy days of obligation. There were perhaps <laughs> maybe one, maybe two or three a month. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so you could not attack on those days. And you could not attack if your enemy was eating. So if he was having lunch, <laughs> you could not attack. And also, you, you, it was sufficient to merely touch your enemy in order to have him throw down his arms. 
So if you could tag somebody, your enemy, all you had to do is touch him. And by the rules, he had to throw down his weapon. And there's a famous case of that, and that is St. Joan of Arc, who was tagged as she was on her horse by one of the English. And she had to give up. Now, some might cynically say, Your Excellency, this isn't because uh, you wanted to delay sharpening your knives until they were on the dessert course, but rather that (laughs) the conflict comes from anger. And if you have to wait a day to attack somebody, you might just decide, you know, maybe you don't need to go to war after all. I don't think so. I I think it was just uh, that even war comes under the rules, charity, kindness, mercy, even war does. I mean, you have to inflict a great deal of damage on your enemy in war, but that uh, that you don't throw aside the law of charity, even in war. Uh, that, uh, uh, that 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 there's it, it, it is something that permeates all society. Uh, for example, the getting rid of the gladiatorial games that was very difficult in Rome. You know, Rome started to become Christian. Uh, around the uh, Edict of Milan, 3, 312 A.D., uh, started to. Uh, it, it, it became officially Christian under Theodosius in the 370s, but the popes could not get rid of the gladiatorial games until the 500s, because it took a while for the Christian culture to, to permeate people. See, to get rid of that pagan, brutal culture of cutting down people and all that bloodthirsty culture of the Romans, it took a long time for that to disappear. And finally, a pope said, that's it, we're not doing it anymore. <laughs> it's finished. <laughs> that was the end of it. Is that, is, that because, uh, is that because culture is a great teacher of minds, Your Excellency? Oh, yes. Culture is extremely powerful. You you so easily accept what culture is, uh, what what people around you are commonly doing, and what they commonly think is right and true and good. You, you uh, traditional Catholics understand the power of culture because they see how much they are ostracized by retaining the Catholic culture in the present anti-Catholic in, uh, culture and and pagan culture, neo-pagan culture. They sense it all the time. Uh, they, they lose family and friends so easily. They become so isolated. Everybody has a story about this. We don't have any more friends, and we don't have any more family, <laughs> practically, uh, you know, in some cases more than others. But I, I hear it as a priest, you know, that uh, uh, when you start applying the Catholic principles of morality to this neo-pagan world, ah, it's, it's you know, what are you, some sort of a, a pariah, or you, know, you are considered just something, something despicable, because you are going against the culture, uh, and that's why you know Catholic culture is very important. That's why the reign of Christ in society is very important, and that was achieved in the early Middle Ages, and that's why you had this flourishing of Catholic culture. You know, for uh, all of those centuries, uh, and you know, the building of great monasteries and, and cathedrals, and you know where all of the intelligence of man was on God, it was on theology, uh, and it, all of his artwork was on God. Uh, his architecture was on God. Uh, there is very little that survives the Middle Ages as anything noteworthy from the point of view of art or architecture that is not sacred. 
you can tell that there is very little literature that is not sacred. It's the mm. intelligence of man was fixed on the sacred, and the whole culture was fixed on the sacred. Uh, it was a beautiful time in that sense. You know, it's uh, probably not as convenient as our own times, but uh, certainly we would not have had that assault on the intellect that we get every day. The assault that we get not only on the face, but also on the intellect, the absurdity of life today, uh, that, that mm. we're calling things right and true, which are evil. I mean, that anyone with a brain could figure out are, are rotten. Uh, well, they, they're you know, politically correct today, and, and you know, transgendering and things like that are all fine and good. And if you object to it, then you're the evil one. That That is a, a type of torture of our intellect. It would be like living in a world in which 2 plus 2 equals 5, where you had to say 2 plus 2 equals 5, even though you know it's wrong. Uh, you know, it, it's the same thing. But there would have been a, a beautiful clarity in the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, uh, everything was ordered the way it should be uh, in the Middle Ages, and that would have been a, a great replacement for a cell phone. You give me you give me a cathedral, I'll give you a cell phone. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I was I, I know that you're not the uh, the the biggest fan of Victor Hugo, Your Excellency, but uh, he he calls oh. Notre Dame he calls Notre Dame uh, a book that that uh, architecture was the book before the printing press was invented, and I think in many ways that's true. Oh yes, yes. Uh, it is true. It was. Uh, they are magnificent uh, examples of engineering and architecture, beauty of architecture, and uh, you, you can see that all of their interest was in that. Uh, they, uh, and it, it's such a statement that uh, all of those cathedrals make such a statement uh, to the world around them. Uh, they, they never cease to preach to the world around them, even in these times. You mentioned on the most recent Francis watch that while you were in uh, in England, you would see women in in cassocks or in mitres, and this seems so absurd and ridiculous to you. And I suppose again, that's the difference between you coming from a Catholic culture and having a normalization of this is how things are supposed to be. You have nuns, you have seminarians, you have priests. You're reinforced by this culture all the time. So when you see something like that, it's absurd. Whereas Catholics in England have been assaulted and assaulted and assaulted over the years that they yeah. lost the sort of horror for this. It's not their fault in, in some ways, but you're right. It's, it's beyond absurd. It's, 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 it's uh, yeah. but that's part it, it of how is. the culture yeah. is. Yes. The culture is extremely formative. And, uh, I often say that that's why the Catholic church bent over backwards, uh, in trying to deal with these hostile kings and all in these countries that wanted to uh, control the church, and this is before the French Revolution, in order to preserve that culture, because the, uh, the Catholic Church understood how, the power of culture. Really good. Question 16. What example does Jesus give in particular to young people? Uh, first, the readiness to obey which is so important today for young people, uh, to take delight in prayer and instruction, piety. Uh, I just read the other day, something I probably read many times, because it's in the breviary, but it struck me the other day. 
St. Ambrose says that piety is the foundation of all virtue. Beautiful, beautiful, simple statements. Piety is the foundation of all virtue. So, uh, uh, yes, our Lord prays a great deal in, in the New Testament, and also he instructs a great deal. Um, the, uh, the, it mentions the love to stay in the house of God, right? to, to be in the courts of the Lord, to, to, uh, uh, and to advance in wisdom and grace as they do in age. So uh, the, uh, our Lord went to the temple uh, to teach and to, to listen to. Uh, uh, he, he, uh, uh, it, and uh, so also he was, came back with his parents to, uh, to Nazareth and was subject to them, it says, and he advanced in, in wisdom and, and grace. Uh, so, um, uh, so, yes, the young people should learn all of those things very uh, the the especially the youth of Christ the whole early part of his life is is an inspiration to the young well and again to your point your excellency they're fighting against the culture the culture is telling them that all that matters is their will and what they want to do mhm yes and also because the culture is faithless uh i think I, 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 I teach and I also do these shows, so I may repeat myself. I can't remember where I said something. But once the faith is out, what becomes all important is the flesh and the family. And so the, the children are now adored and worshipped by the parents because they see the children as extensions of themselves and what will uh, survive them and 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 you know they, they put a certain faith so to speak in their own progeny and so the child becomes the, the center of worship of the house and the will of the child is the law uh and that is so ruinous of children that uh, you know it makes them incapable of of ever obeying the law of god so the you know the the study of the virtues of the christ child is, is very edifying to to children well, I think you made this point particularly, and I, I, I'm trying to remember now because I don't remember where I've heard this from you, but it was either in a conference you gave in London or a conference you gave in Brooksville to families, but it was about raising Catholic children. Um, and you talked about the fact that, uh, and of course, I, I, you know, I'm not married, I don't have children yet, but I'm familiar with this as a teacher, that when a, a child does something wrong, don't assume that the teacher is lying and don't take your child's side immediately, right? That, that's the creeping in. Even among people who attend Mass, who go to church yeah. every Sunday, they it's this sort of creeping child worship, right, that this, yes. Uh, yes. that leads leads them to assume the teacher is lying or their poor Johnny or Jane is persecuted, et cetera. Yes, the, uh, and that's the power of culture. We have people who have been coming to the traditional Mass for years and years, but the priest's greatest task is to pull them away from the modern culture. That they, yes, they are pious and they attend the mass, they come to benediction, they do all of those things, but they come in, in infected with the modern culture. So they don't understand the the culture of obedience that is so much a part of Catholicism. Uh, the if this were a Catholic country. Uh, instead of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor, you would see the Statue of Obedience. 
that obedience mm. to the law of God, uh, that is so much a part of Catholicism. Uh, and, and part of obedience is that you presume, you give the superior the presumption. If there's any kind of a doubt at all whether, you know, the child is, is guilty or not, the superior has presumption that he's right. And that means the teacher. And that presumption is very difficult to overcome. Because there would have to be such clear evidence that the teacher was wrong that uh, it would uh, be very difficult to move your mind because the evidence would have to be so strong. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, all, all authority has the presumption uh, over any kind of doubt. And and you have to to give it that presumption. So that's that's true. The the um, you know the the judge. If you get a ticket uh, and you fight the ticket, the judge automatically presumes when you walk in that the policeman was correct. You have to overcome that. You have to in some way convince the judge against the testimony of the ticket. It's just natural. It's 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 part of you know nature to to act that way. But yet it's all reversed today. It's part of that uh, strange intellectual world we live in where our intellects are insulted every day by, by some bizarre attitude. Uh, so, um, uh, so yes, the, uh, the people should learn to give presumption to the teacher. You ruin authority if you, if you reverse that presumption. If you say, oh, my darling Johnny, I know you're such a wonderful person. You would never have you know, done anything like that. You destroy the fabric of authority. You rip it. And you're destroying your own authority that way too. Uh, and that, that whole fabric of authority that, that starts with God and, and you know, is communicated to the state, is communicated to the family, uh, the, the teacher as, as the representative of the parent, uh, is all of that comes from God, and if you if you destroy one aspect of it, you destroy the whole thing. And and parents don't realize that what they're doing; they just think they're protecting their little child, and in fact, they're destroying their little child. <clears throat> That's probably the challenge again uh, in the culture. You're going to see in in our godless culture, liberty and obedience are set at odds to each other. But within a Christian culture, you're actually most at liberty when you obey. Yes, because you are attached to the will of God who is most free. So you are doing the, the will of God who is infinitely free. And uh, the, uh, that also to elect to obey a law means that you're free. See, that's why God gave us a free will, so that we would elect to obey him. Animals obey him, plants obey him, minerals obey him, by a law that he has placed in each of those things. Physical laws, they can't do anything else, because they, they are like robots in a sense. But it is more, a more perfect glory of God to obey him because we elect to obey him. We remain perfectly free in that election, and that's why he gave us free will, in order that we use it to elect him, to uh, elect to obey him. That's a more perfect glorification of God. 
Remember, everything we have is for the glory of God, whether it's our intellects, our wills, our passions, our bodies, it's all for the glory of God. Question 17, our last question for today's episode, Your Excellency, is why did Jesus Christ make a choice of a poor and humble life? He did so because uh, he wanted, for many reasons. First of all, it was part of his passion. His whole public life had a passion to it. it, it uh, his poverty, his humility, uh, his... Uh, uh, things that you know that he couldn't didn't even have a home in which to lay his head. Uh, all of those things are part of his passion, but also he wanted to strip of himself any kind of possibility of criticism, and therefore make his gospel something entirely pure of humanity. See, so if he had. Uh, you know, if he had taken up collections and gathered a lot of money as a result of his preaching, see, that would have uh, detracted from his gospel. Uh, if he had arrived in, in, in uh, some sort of, uh, you know, arrived like a king being carried around and, you know, with all sorts of servants, and that would have detracted from his gospel. Uh, and uh, so that's one of the motives is that and that's one of the uh, arguments of Catholic apologetics that there's nothing in Christ that you can possibly criticize there is no fault in him and this is admitted even by his enemies there's absolutely nothing to criticize and it makes his gospel as as pure as as sparkling water I mean it's a uh, it's a beautiful thing. There's no bad motive in it. Uh, also, uh, the the uh, book mentions that, uh, uh, as I said, uh, confirms that that it's part of his passion to have accepted a poor and humble life, and also it teaches us not to be attached to things of this world. So uh, he's practicing what he's preaching. He's saying this world is ephemeral. Uh, it, we're all going to die. Uh, we, the next world uh, is is the real world that you should live for, and and that your purpose of life in this world is to prepare for the next, and to do good, to avoid evil, and and you know, to do acts of charity, to love God, to pray to God. Uh, that these are the important things in life, and that uh, the material things are are not very important. Well, I think that's an excellent way to end today's episode, Your Excellency. Thank you so much for for joining us. And uh, we look forward to having you on our our next episode where we'll continue talking about this. For those who are following along, our listeners, uh, remember that in the show notes we'll have a link. If you don't have a hard copy of this book, we'll have a show link. We have a link in the show notes to the Internet free version of this. Today's episode, we covered pages 115 through 118. Again, thank you so much, Your Excellency, and we look forward to having you on uh, next time. If you have any questions for His Excellency or anything that you'd like us to clarify in future episodes, remember that you can write to us at catechism at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that this is Catholicism. It's a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved. Any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org.
All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, or beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.